Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 15 to 23. In a few minutes, we're going to install uh, two elders to our council. Every time that kind of event happened in the Bible, it was uh, accompanied by prayer and fasting. And indeed, in our case, much prayer has already accompanied this selection process over the last couple of months. But it's not just at the beginning that prayer is in order. Throughout the New Testament, the apostles frequently asked for the people's prayer. And the apostles often record the prayers that they offered on behalf of God's people. It seems that this whole relationship between the church and her leaders is one bathed in prayer. So how do we pray? Lord bless the council? Or how ought the elders to pray for the congregation? Lord bless such and such a family? Father, make so-and-so well again. If that's all we do, no wonder it seems like a waste of time. So this morning I want to consider one example of prayer, which I think gives us some concrete guidance. This is a prayer offered by the Apostle Paul for the church at Ephesus. Surely it consists of things which our leaders ought to be praying for the members of this church. At the same time, this is the Apostle's prayer for the leaders of that congregation. Surely then it's an appropriate thing for us all to be praying for our leaders. No matter what your situation, this is a great passage on how we ought to pray for one another. So let me read it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now this is a great text, and it has many, many, many layers of meaning. We will not begin to exhaust it all, but I want to draw from it two exhortations. We'll spend most of our time on the second one, for it has three, uh, three sections in itself. But first, this exhortation. Give thanks for what God has done. How do we pray? We begin by giving thanks for what God has done. According to Romans 1, ingratitude 
is one of the very most basic sins of mankind. People everywhere see some evidence of God's existence, but fail to give him thanks. And in that neglect to thankfully acknowledge God as God, Romans 1 says, we become guilty without excuse before God. Oh, but it's not just the ignorant pagan who fails to give thanks. God's own people have a long history of ingratitude. You think of Israel's experience in the wilderness in the Old Testament. They grumbled and grumbled even as they ate manna from heaven. They grumbled. Even when God opened the Red Sea and they crossed through on dry ground, they grumbled. When water came from the rock and God provided for them in the desert, they grumbled. When God gave them good leaders, they grumbled. And to this day, many churches are filled with grumbling as we focus repeatedly on all that's wrong and fail to give thanks for what is good. What a contrast to this text, which calls us to give thanks for what God has done in our midst. You see it there in verse 15 and 16. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I don't think these are just empty words of flattery that the Apostle Paul kind of wrote in some generic sense because it sounded like nice God words and he didn't know anything better to write. Oh, no. Paul spent longer in Ephesus than he spent in any other church in the New Testament. He knew the problems in the church in Ephesus. Later, when he was in prison toward the end of his life, he reports that all of Asia, that is, all the province of which Ephesus was the capital, had forsaken him. You think he didn't see the beginnings of that when he was there for several years? He knew the faults of this church only too well. But rather than focusing on all the things that were wrong, all that needed attention, Paul focused on the great things God had done there. In in verses 3 to 10, he praised God for his great salvation planned in eternity past. In verses 11 to 14, he he reflected on how God had lavished his grace on the Jew first and then even on Gentiles. And then here in verses 15 and 16, Paul reflected on how God's great salvation had come to that town of Ephesus. The gospel had transformed their lives so that they believed things they didn't used to believe. And they loved people they didn't used to love. And for that, the apostle never stopped giving thanks. For that is evidence of God's mighty work. And so this morning I call on us first of all to give thanks for what God has done here among us. You people of God, the Lord has blessed you with his salvation. And now he has blessed you with godly leaders. Do you know how many people sit in congregations where the gospel is never heard? Do you know how many churches struggle under the leadership of men not qualified for the office they hold? Do you know how many church councils are themselves torn apart with unbelief and division? But God has blessed us with the sweet fruit of the gospel. Give him thanks.
Now you may say, well, we know that already. I know you know that already. But we don't automatically do that. It's so easy to grumble about what's wrong with the church. It's easy to demand, why doesn't the council do that? Or why did they do that? But God would have a start by giving him thanks for what he's already done. And you elders on the council also need this exhortation. There is a danger in dealing with all the problems of the church, one mess after another. You become a cynic if you're not careful. And after a while, all you can do is assume the worst about everybody. But dear fellow elders, look around you. Every person you see is a trophy of God's grace. Every person you see is so precious in the eyes of the Lord of the church that he spilled his lifeblood for that person. Every person you see is so valuable that the church is not complete without him or her. We leaders never have the right to say to one of God's precious children, we don't need you here. Instead, God calls us to give thanks, to never stop giving thanks for what he has done in the lives of these people. This morning I call you all, I call myself, to a conscious, disciplined gratitude that looks for evidence of God's grace in one another and continually bows in wonder and gratitude for what God has done here. That's the first truth. Most of the passage is given to a second truth. And that is simply pray to know the fullness of God. Pray to know the fullness of God. It's been well observed that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. That's true if you're investing in the stock market. That's true if you're trying to fix your own computer. Hardly anyone would deny a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. So how is it that we settle for knowing so little of the faith we profess? Paul prays for the Ephesian church and teaches us to pray for one another that we might know the fullness of God. Actually, there are several things that Paul prays we would know, and let me just mention three things here, if I can boil it down to that. Three things about the fullness of God. First of all, pray to know God himself more fully. Pray to know God himself more fully. That's the point of verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now folks, knowing God is not automatic. One could sit in church year after year and hear sermon after sermon after sermon and serve on one committee or another and never really know God very much. It happened to Philip, one of the twelve. He traveled with Jesus day in and day out for three years. Heard him teach, saw him do miracles, saw the, the wondrous things. But just before Jesus' death, Jesus rebuked Philip for not knowing him, 
We read about it in John 14, 9. Jesus said, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time? Knowing God fully ought to be the goal of every person. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul sets before us as the goal of his life. He says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I want to know Christ, he says. Even Jesus acknowledged this is the most important thing when he prayed, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Christ Jesus whom you have sent. Knowing God. The problem is, it's not quite just in our power to know God. You can't go into a lab and do lab experiments and pour God into a test tube and measure him and look at him under a microscope. No, you can only know God as he's pleased to reveal himself. He's not at our disposal. We are at his mercy even to know him. And that's why the text calls us to pray. Pray that the glorious... Uh, that the glories of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, that the glorious Lord Jesus Christ will give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know him better. Pray that God will enlighten the eyes of our heart that we might understand. Pray that God will overrule our natural blindness to the things of God uh, where we don't understand anything about him for unless God gives us wisdom and understanding of his revelation of himself, we will live out our lives in ignorance of him. You see, the task to which we install these men today is greater than even they can do, more than even they can understand. How can they hold before the church the living God if they don't know him, know him immediately and intimately and deeply and personally. If they don't know who God is, they will further confuse the church by their misrepresentations. But such knowledge of God is not automatically at their disposal. It's a gift of God's grace to know God. So you need to hold them before the Lord in prayer asking him to make himself known. Pray that they may know the fullness of God. And you elders of Christ's church, these people in this church don't need to know how smart you are, how clever you are, how quick a wit you are. They need to know God. But you can't just make that happen. No matter how faithfully you labor, you don't have words good enough to communicate the, 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 the incomprehensible God. Your ability to even comprehend what you're talking about falters. So what do you do? Pray. Pray that God, through the enlightenment of his Holy Spirit, would open people's hearts to his word and make himself known. That's the most important thing you can do. Pray that they would know God 
in all his fullness. That's the first of the three. The second, pray to know, not just God in his fullness, pray to know the fullness of God's plan. The fullness of God's plan. These days, everyone has a different spin on what a church ought to be. Some see the church as a Christian alternative to the entertainment business. We want to get people excited about Jesus. Some people see it as a Christian alternative to government social programs. We need to eradicate suffering in Jesus' name. Some people see the church as a Christian political action committee. We, we need to mobilize believers to exercise dominion over the earth. Some people see the church as a depository of ancient traditions. We need to hold fast to old proven ways. And there are a myriad of other spins that people put on the, on the, on the purpose of the church. So which is right? What should our hope for the church be? For you see, there's something that's true about each of those things. We ought to be excited about Jesus. We, we ought to care about people suffering. We ought to make Christ's lordship known. We, we, we ought to hold fast to ancient truths. But is that all there is to do? Might, might there be other even more important things? Where should we invest our time and our energy and our money? The leaders of this church will have to lead this body down some path. Which one? The forces pulling on churches are enormous. The expectations of the members themselves are overwhelming. The models of seemingly very successful churches are, are, are always in your face. Who could ever know which way we ought to go? We, we simple little guys that serve on this council, would we know? I don't think so. That's why we need to pray to know the fullness of God's plan. That's the exhortation of verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you were called, the riches of the inheritance in the saints. Amid all the hype in the church, the truth is few people are really listening to what God has to say about his agenda, but that's what we need to know. Paul calls it the mystery of Christ, which was not made known through other generations, but has now been revealed to us by his Spirit. This plan of, of, of God is so staggering that the apostle writes of it, we, seek, we speak of God's secret wisdom, wisdom that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers, rulers of this age understood it. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. This plan of God has to do with the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how does that apply in Wiser Lake Chapel? don't know. We have to sort that out. So dear saints, I call you to pray for these leaders. Pray that God, God would give them wisdom from on high, wisdom beyond the years, wisdom greater than their experience, that they might know the plan of God.
And you elders of the church, I call you to the same kind of praying for this congregation. For God did not design his church to just sit in silence and ignorance while the experts serve him. God has seen fit to fill his whole church with his spirit, to indwell every believer, to give gifts of grace to every child of God, to make every member an integral part of his body. But without the wisdom of God's spirit giving direction, this is a church that becomes chaotic. So I call you elders to pray. Pray that we might know the fullness of God's agenda, our hope and inheritance. Pray that this congregation will bring all of its diverse gifts to bear on one great agenda, God's agenda, which involves the advance of the gospel. For the truth is, it doesn't matter what you like or I like. It doesn't matter what we've always done or what we've never done. It doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. All that matters is that this whole church be doing with a singleness of purpose what God has given us to do. But that is something only God himself can orchestrate. So pray that we might know the fullness of God's plan. And finally, a third thing. Pray that we might know the fullness of God's power. Power. In recent years, the church has gained remarkable expertise in wielding power. We've learned something about political power. We've become fairly rich, and we know how to wield the power that riches brings. The church has become highly educated and knows how to use fine-sounding words. It has become media savvy and can communicate its message with convincing, uh, artistic uh, sophistication. Oh, we know something about wielding power, so why is it that uh, the enemies of the gospel are not falling at our feet in repentance and faith? Because no matter how well we know God and how well we understand his plan, the power of human invention is not enough to do God's work. Unless you have God's power at work, nothing is going to happen. That was God's warning even through the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, where we read, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And so God has given us the gospel, which he says is the very power of God to salvation. God's power at work. Unseen power, different than the power of wealth and politics and education and and, 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 and media, communication. Different power. Spiritual power. We read about an interesting example of it in, in 2 Kings 6. When the armies of the king of Aram surrounded the prophet Elisha, his servant, I mean just Elisha and his servant there, and you got this uh, armed camp around you, his servant became uh, quite terrified, assuming that they were about to be overrun and killed. Oh, what, what, what will we do, he says to Elisha. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. 
<laughs> Is that an absurd statement? Here's the whole army around you, and here's two of you. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open this servant's eyes that he may see. And the Lord did so. He gave the servant of Elisha perception to see what was really there that was unseen. And as he looked, he saw the hills around them filled with horses and chariots of fire surrounding Elisha. You see, Elisha prayed that his servant might know the fullness of God's unseen power. And that's just what we're called to pray. For what was true for Elisha is even more certain today. Jesus promised his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The Apostle Paul talks about, uh, about this power when he says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. God has given his people power, but it's not what we expect. It's not wielded as we think about wielding power. Instead, this power appears in the midst of our utter weakness. We hear it in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure of the gospel in these clay pots to show that the all-surpassing power is from God, not us. The Lord told Paul this in 2 Corinthians 12. The Lord said to me, he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul says, I'll boast of my weakness, for when I'm weak, then Christ's power rests on me. You see, knowing God's power is not the triumphalism that we might expect. It's, it's the resurrection of Christ uh, by his spirit occurring in us as we die every day. That's a different kind of power. This is incomprehensible to us. We'd rather have political power and, 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 and uh, the power of wealth. and we, we love that kind of power, but no, this is what God has given us. The power of the resurrection life of Jesus, the life of his spirit, in the midst of our utter weakness of our dying to self, to the world, to sin, every day. But this is not some second-rate power that the Lord offers us that's ineffective in the real world. Oh, no. In verses 20 to 23, we see some descriptions of this power. It's the power by which Jesus was raised from the dead. It's the power by which he ascended to the throne in heaven and, and was given authority over everything. It's the power by which God is now subduing his enemies to himself. It's the power with which he fills his church. Now, folks, this is what we need. We don't necessarily need stronger personalities or better programs. We need the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus, the power of his spirit at work among us. But that you can't just conjure up. And that's why we need to pray 
that God would make known the fullness of his power in this place. That's what you elders need to be praying. It doesn't help to rail on people because they're not what they ought to be. Pray that God would fill them with power to be what they ought to be. And that's what you people need to pray for your elders. You need to understand the counsel of this church has no more clout than you do. They can't make things happen magically somehow. You need to pray that they would know the fullness of God's promised power. This morning we're about to install two elders in their church. And on, on the one hand, that's, it's an utterly absurd thing we're going to do. They're not smart enough. Nor is such wisdom naturally within their grasp. And if they did know what to do, they don't have the power to make it happen. And even if they could lead perfectly, you wouldn't follow them very well. Ah, but this absurd thing is how God does his work. So council and congregation alike, I call you this morning to pray. First to give thanks for the miracle of God's grace that he has already worked in this place. And then secondly, to pray that we might go on to know his fullness. That we might know him in his fullness. That we might know the fullness of his plan. That we might know his power. The power of the life-giving spirit working in broken clay pots. Let me close with an illustration from history. A true account of a church praying. In 1727, the Moravian community at Hernhut in Saxony decided to organize a prayer watch. And the way it worked was this. They divided the church into the men and the women, and they had one man and one woman uh, agree to pray for one hour throughout the day, 24 hours a day, 24 people praying throughout the day. Two people always praying for this church and for the advance of the gospel 24 hours a day. That sounds like an ambitious plan, doesn't it? How long might that have lasted? <laughs> can, can you imagine if we instigated that? Would we make it to the end of the week? I'm not sure. This round-the-clock prayer continued uninterrupted for 100 years. 100 years. After 65 years, it's noted that the Moravians had sent 300 missionaries from their little group out to the ends of the earth. And not only did their own church grow, but the missionary churches that had been planted through this effort grew three times larger than the home church grew. Now historians marvel at the Great Awakening revivals which swept through England and through the United States in the 18th century. 
during which hundreds of thousands of people were converted. But one has to wonder if those victories were not largely won by simple Moravian believers who during that whole period of history were on their knees round the clock praying. I call you to pray. Amen. Father, it's convicting to talk about prayer for we know all of us how little we pray. We find time for the most silly, petty things. And yet prayer so easily gets squeezed out. Father, it's probably because we don't really see how desperately we need you to even know you, to know your plan, to know the power to do it. Perhaps we don't really see how desperately hopeless we were apart from your grace, and so we're not filled with gratitude. So we just ask that you would fill us with gratitude and that you would cause us to see, Lord, how desperately we need you and to be diligent about asking. We pray this for our elders. We pray this for the people of this congregation. May it not be a passing thing that this afternoon we say, oh yeah, I've got to do that, and then forget about it by tomorrow. But as our Moravian brothers and sisters persisted for so long, may we persist in asking. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.